The tongue example is really nice, and not just because of its octopus-like physiological features. Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Peter Gottfried Smith is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney in Australia, after previously teaching at Stanford, Harvard, and the Cooney Graduate Center. He's written six books, including Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness, now in 20 languages, and his most recent book, Metazoa, Animal Life, and the Birth of the Mind, which will be the subject for our conversation today. Peter, welcome to The Filter. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by describing your book, Metazoa, to our listeners. I see it essentially as a composition of three intertwined pieces. One part is the stories of your dives off the coast of Australia to observe sea creatures. One is the story of evolution with a particular focus on sea creatures like octopi and crustaceans. And the third is a story about brains, minds, and consciousness. Before we dive into the content, would you say that's fair as a very broad description of your book? Yes, that is. That was the intention. With one extra narrative-like element, which is I think of the book as in some ways having the shape of one long scuba dive, entering the water, seeing a sequence of animals, and then coming out and thinking again about life on land. So a, a series of intertwined journeys of that kind. I like that framing, and I did notice how the the different dives seem to pull everything together. And in the book, you go back and forth between the literal descriptions of the dives and then more of the abstract thinking about consciousness. Uh, And actually, before we get into consciousness itself, one way to look at it is that's a subset of uh, a feature that some life forms have and some don't, and perhaps we shouldn't think of it that way. But before we get into that, I want to note that there are actually lots of ways to look at what is life itself. And my own take on that depends on the idea of a membrane, which is something that you discuss early on in your book in terms of cells. A membrane is a separation device, but it's not a complete separation device. Membranes let some things in and keep others out. And if I had to give a definition of life, it would be something like any organism that intentionally constructs a membrane. What are your thoughts on that way of looking at life? I think that it's true that the role of membranes is much underrated. When, when people think about life these days, there's an almost an instinctive turn now to looking at the role of DNA, the genetic side of things, rather than what I think of as the metabolic side of things which I roughly think of as more fundamental to life. And once you're thinking about life, about living systems in metabolic terms, in terms of the way that they maintain their structure, they use sources of energy, they retain an otherwise improbable organization. Once you're thinking that way, then membranes are extremely important. Their importance for me, though, is derivative on 
those broader features of metabolism, the idea of maintaining a distinctive and otherwise set of processes or, or pattern of activity. If you don't have a membrane, then everything will sort of drift away and entropy will, be able, will, will do its thing, roughly speaking. So you have to confine activities that are living activities. But as you say, you can't confine them too much because you need to be taking in energy from outside. You need to be engaging in various kinds of traffic with your environment. So a membrane that controls rather than excluding interaction across it is, I agree, a very important thing. I'd be resistant to the idea of making that the central concept, though, for the, for the reasons that I was, I was just describing. There's the derivativeness, I think it has on, in some ways, quite old ideas. I mean, in thinking about life, this, this metabolic conception of life is, is not a new one. It's been around for a long time. And the idea of maintaining an otherwise improbable pattern of activity, maintaining your structure in the face of thermodynamic tendencies. That's why I'd be putting the sort of first emphasis. So that would be a definition that would hinge in some sense on the idea of entropy, that a life form is something that bends entropy to its own advantage or uses available energy to reverse at a local scale the law of thermodynamics of the universe. Yeah, uses energy to resist at a local scale the tendency for things to collapse into, into disorder. Th th those sorts of things I think of as a good way of thinking about what's central about life. I don't want to be too definite in the following sense. There's lots of discussion at the moment about viruses, of course, and an old question is whether viruses are alive. Viruses don't have a metabolism they do have a kind of physical discreteness of a kind, though without a membrane. They have a kind of integrity as, as objects, but they don't have a metabolism. They don't have the particular kind of membrane-related traffic that cellular life has. Now, if, so, if someone wants to insist that viruses are alive because of the way they engage in evolutionary processes, the way they evolve... I, I tend not to say that, but I think there's not much point in arguing about the question. I think that the concept of life has a kind of metabolic side to it, which we've been talking about just now, and it has a kind of evolutionary side to it related to the embedding of an object in parent-offspring relationships, in Darwinian evolution, and so on. And plenty of people, very smart people, very you know, leading biologists have thought of that as really at least of comparable importance to life as the metabolic side. And as I say, I, I wouldn't want to argue with them. I think the concept of life just has, has a couple of different facets, these two facets being the main ones. And what modern biology has done with the concept of life is partly explain it and partly deflate it. The idea of life as a really definite and special thing, I think, has faded one of the things I, I like about the membrane concept when it comes to life, and also I suppose about the metabolic one, is that you're no longer constrained to thinking about life as being at the level of the whole entity. So you have life at the level of me, of you, of a dog, but you also have life at the level of an organ 
or an individual cell. So when you think about an organism, you're not just thinking about a life, you're thinking about an overlapping set of clusters of life in in a more broad sense. And I, I find that valuable way to look at it, especially when you begin to get into some of the ideas that you talk about of where does consciousness reside and how does it work? Yeah, the, the, the idea that an organ is itself alive, there's obviously a sense in which that's true. My first response to that is to think that, I mean, here I am actually going, thinking aloud a bit of thought about a couple of these matters before, uh, but not this particular thing, but not very much. I'd be inclined to say that a a person's alive. We have that set of metabolic processes. We maintain our otherwise improbable organization in the face of a tendency towards collapse into disorder and that kind of thing. We use energy in those ways. And a, a living cell a cell is also alive. The cells that make us up are also alive. Bit inclined to say that a heart is alive just in the sense that it is made up of living cells rather than it, it having itself this set of features. Roughly speaking, because the heart as an organ is just doing one of the various things that the whole organism, the human being, has to do to have... To, to maintain this pattern of activity that we're maintaining. A heart doesn't have any chance of doing it all itself. Now, one response to that is to say that, well, even, even the human being has to do so in a way that requires an, an embedding or a scaffolding of lots of other stuff. Right. We're all parasites when viewed from a particular angle, perhaps would be the response to that, right? That would be a strong way of putting it, but I, I get the thought. And... I think there are some puzzles here. And surprisingly, I mean, philosophy of biology, there's some topics on which it spends a vast amount of time and some topics on which it doesn't. I read a paper some years ago about the concept of an organism, what an organism is, and how the kind of individuality that an organism has relates to the kind of individuality that is important in other kinds of biological matters. And there wasn't that much stuff to read that was high quality, especially recently, about organisms. So, for example, this question we've just been talking about concerning the nesting of living things, it can be stated as a question about organisms as follows. You can say, can you have an organism which has organisms as parts? Is that a sort of, is it a special situation? Is it routine? Is it something that requires a kind of redescription? So if you have living bacteria inside us, is that part-whole relationship different from the part-whole relationship that our own cells have as living things with us as wholes? And I was inclined to say, I mean, when I wrote that paper, that there's a little bit of an exclusion principle here, which is to the extent that the larger whole system has the features of an organism, its parts must not or must at least have less of that character because what makes the whole an organism is partly the way in which all its parts have to work together in order for it to maintain its pattern of activity. And if various parts can do it on their own, if they, do, if they can do it without working together, that's a kind of 
turning down of the dial, in a sense, with respect to organismality or organismness. Now, I'm not, I'm not at all sure about this. And one thing I'm emphasizing is there was less to look at in the literature on this question than I expected. We're in territory here, which is less explored than one might expect. So let me bring it back down to the concrete. What got me thinking about this was your description of uh, octopus, octopi, and the arms that they have and how they interact with the central nervous system of a sort. Maybe you could describe that. Sure. An octopus, you know, a special animal in, in a number of ways, one of the ways it's special concerns the the size and also the organization of its nervous system. An octopus has a really big nervous system for an invertebrate and has quite a bit of that structure centralized in its brain, but less than half, more than half of an octopus's nervous system is distributed through the body, especially through the arms and especially in the upper arms. There's a lot more nervousness in the body itself of an octopus than there is in a typical animal. There's, this is an unusual way of spreading your nervous system out through the whole, the whole system. And as a consequence of that, a, a set of questions arises which are still mostly unresolved. There are some really good experimental papers now that, that tell us something about this. But the question of whether there's a kind of degree of autonomy in each octopus arm. So an, an octopus arm is packed with senses. It, all those suckers are able to taste everything that they touch. There's really acute chemosensing all through the arm. They have tactile sensors there as well. So they're sensing a lot. And there's some amount of local processing of what is sensed by the arm. Way back in the 1950s, when octopus laboratory work was at its early stages, the impression people had was that octopuses, in many cases, just had no idea where their arms were. They didn't have the kind of top-down control, even close to it, that is typical in animals like us. Now, that, that initial picture, I think, has been replaced or is, is, is perhaps being replaced by one in which there's a kind of mixed control present perhaps. An octopus can pull itself together. It can act as a very coherent whole when there's something it needs to do. It can, it can do whole organism coordinated behaviors using many or all of the arms. But you can also see situations where this is impressionistic, but it's certainly a very strong impression. It looks like there's a kind of local semi-autonomous exploration going on by individual arms. You can have, you know, four of them just kind of roaming around, sensing, touching, responding to what they sense in a way that, again, it's tempting to think is partially but not entirely controlled by the central brain. Now, how to think about this? There are some high-quality papers. Uh, Tamar Gutnick and her collaborators, Michael Kuber and others, have a new paper about the octopus's apparent ability to track what it has done with a particular arm. The literature is tending towards finding perhaps a bit more central control than had been imagined many decades ago. But there is a, 
a real question about what kind of acting self the octopus is. And there's, there's almost a kind of three-way, you know, a, a three-way series of gestalt switches that you can go through thinking about them. So one way of thinking about them is just to see the octopus as a single organism with very complicated appendages, acting as a whole, mostly or entirely just a coherent, a coherent unity as an agent. Another way is to look for those hints of autonomy in the arms, in the arms themselves. And there you might, you might find yourself recognizing something like nine centers of agency or very rough approximations to them in the octopus. There's also a third way, which I hadn't actually thought about much until I, I noticed this being discussed by others, where because of the connectedness across the various parts of the neural network, the neural networks in the arms, because of the way that the neural networks in the arms are linked to each other, you think there's two centers, that there are sort of two processing centers rather than one or nine. You think of the octopus's central brain as being one, and you think of the entire peripheral nervous system, the arm-based nervous system, as another. There's a paper from some years ago by Frank Grasso, who's a biologist and roboticist, called The Octopus with Two Brains, where he explores this idea. It doesn't endorse it. I don't think anyone's really claimed that this is how things are, but it's there might be a bit of this going on. It might be part of what's true of the octopus. So there's really a kind of mixed selfhood or mixed agency to some extent with the octopus in a way that is unusual in comparison to other animals. So I liked a lot your description of the octopus and the way that the arms can almost do their own thing. Though when I was thinking about it, I want to make the case that, um, you know, so you see our consciousness is perhaps more tightly integrated than an octopus in the sense that we don't seem to have these independent parts that can go about their business of exploring our space on their own. But I, I think we may be more like an octopus in that sense than perhaps you give credit for in the book. For example, I'm sure you've had the experience of having some kind of sore or injury in your mouth. And what does your tongue do? Well, it almost certainly will find that sore and linger on it and explore it and keep flicking at it until we pay attention to our tongue. And then we tell our tongue, yes, I know there's a sore there, but please stop rubbing at it because that's really not doing any good. And then our tongue will obey us for a moment and then when we go back to focusing on something else, it might go back to rubbing that same sore until we notice that it's doing it again and essentially tell our tongue to stop doing that. And I see the same pattern with my fingers sometimes when I'm distracted by something. They're fidgeting, playing with a pen, kind of doing their own thing. Like my tongue, I can control them or I can kind of let it run its own script, which explores surfaces, pens, whatever. And like my tongue, there seems to be some intelligence there. They're not neither smart nor dumb. They know not to press really hard on the tip of a, a pen. And they can type without my brain explicitly telling them, press key E, press key B. Now, it's not clear exactly where the memory of that is or what muscle memory is in that sense, but I think that there might be a case that 
our parts do in fact have some sort of a an autonomy or an exploratory nature that is not always fully controlled in the same way that you see those octopus arms kind of exploring the environment on their own what do you think i agree it can it can feel like that sometimes i mean th- that example with the tongue is is a, a nice example and a different one from the ones that are often introduced here. People sometimes talk about playing a musical instrument semi-automatically once once you're good at playing and things like that. The tongue example is really nice and not just because of its octopus-like physiological features. It can feel autonomous without neurally being autonomous, without it going on in a way that is independent of what the brain itself is up to. I think that's important. There can be sort of autonomous feeling things that we do, such as type. It can feel like our fingers are doing the typing. But as I understand it, that's not, it can't literally be a matter of control processes in the hand making all that possible. It's, it's, except in the case of reflexes, it's being routed backwards and forwards. It's all being shuttled backwards and forwards to the brain, to parts of the brain that we don't have conscious access to the processing of much of the time. So there is this feeling of things just being done by our body. But in the octopus case, if the sort of mixed control picture is right, it's in a sense more literally true. There's more actual processing going on in the arm with probably some relaying of information backwards and forwards to the central brain. I mean, if something important happens, if the arm touches something that matters, either for good or ill, I take it, and this is just based on the sort of ordinary ways that octopuses behave, the central brain is made aware of that pretty quickly. And it's not the case that a whole kind of ongoing project can be embarked on by an arm independently of the brain's involvement. It's not like that. But the kind of local exploration, maybe one way to put it might be to say the kind of local exploration that one's hands can do, that my hands are doing now as I speak to you, sort of roaming around in a way that I'm not paying much attention to or or deliberately controlling, the way in which that can feel like it's autonomous or semi-autonomous and something that the hand is just doing, it can feel like that for us without it really probably being like that for us. With an octopus, it's more literally the way the animal is is doing its thing. So let's talk, move from, say, those organs like the hand or the tongue to something internally, our stomach, which does have something like a brain of its own? That's right. It, it has... It has a nervous system or or part of a nervous system is there and quite a large one. And this is something I don't know enough about to comment in detail on. I I need to learn more about the enteric nervous system and, and how it's related to the rest of the nervous system in the body. I mean, perhaps it's the case that we all need to learn more about it. I don't know how much is known, but I'll be I'll be cautious in talking about that case. Let's just use it then perhaps to introduce one of the topics that you talk about in your book, which is that I don't 
I have a sense often that my stomach is sensing things. And I sometimes think that my stomach has a memory of its own. It can somehow remember whether I've finished a piece of food or not. Maybe that's in my brain. Maybe that's in my stomach. But certainly, I wouldn't say that my stomach is conscious in the way that we are or self-conscious. And one of the things you do is that you split up the idea of consciousness into... I'm sorry, maybe you can describe it best. There are two parts to it. There's the sensitivity, and then there's the experiential. Is that right? The I think the distinction that we're heading towards is a distinction between the sensory or perceptual side of experience and the evaluative side. I'm, very, I'm going to be quite cautious about the stomach. I think that there's something I can say, which, which I think is a very interesting theme, and I wonder if things will go that way. The rough picture, I think, is likely in the case of human experience is uh, a picture where it's the whole person, it's the whole, the whole organism, the whole body, the brain, and quite a bit of other stuff that is the basis for experience. There's a single thing, the living human being, that has experience that feels its path, the path taken through the world rather than just have things happening to it. There's a, a single thing there for which there's something it's like to be that system, to use Thomas Nagel's famous old phrase. And then the question arises of which features or parts or processes within that system make some contribution to experience. Now, the, the tendency in a lot of recent neuroscience and philosophy and really all over the place that the tendency has been to have well firstly uncontro less controversially a very brain-based view of where experience is or you know what it, where its physical basis is but even within the brain what i think of as a kind of a sort of narrow pathway conception of experience where you know within all the processes within our brains lots and lots of stuff going on most of it does not figure in or enter into experience at all. And there's a kind of special mode of processing, a special set of networks, a special pathway that, according to these views, has some features that create or bring into existence or are the basis for felt experience. I'm skeptical about those narrow pathway views in the following way. I think that it's likely that a lot more of what's going on firstly in the brain and also outside the brain and the nervous system in the in the stomach would be an important place to look certainly takes seriously the possibility that there's a lot more going on that makes some difference to what it feels like to be you more than what people have in mind when they think about this sort of narrow pathway within the brain. And to give you an example, so there, there are theories of what felt or subjective experience or consciousness is that make the pathway into working memory, the kind of memory that we have when we sort of hold something in our mind just briefly because we're working on it. It's something immediately retained, that kind of memory. There are theories that make the pathway into, into working memory absolutely central. So whatever you're experiencing has to be sort of either on or around or has some special relationship to the pathway 
from various forms of sensing into that particular very short-term form of memory called working memory. So my, my former colleague, Jesse Prince, would be, he, he's the main person I have in mind here. He defends this view. That's a, a paradigm of a kind of narrow pathway view where there are some contents of our minds that are conscious, that are felt. Where are those contents? Well, they are the ones that are either on or around this special pathway within the brain. And on this view, all of the stuff going on within your body and brain elsewhere, apart from this, it can make no difference to what you experience unless there's some signal or message or representation that's being carried from that part of your body into that very special place, the narrow path. Now, I'm skeptical about that view for a number of reasons. I, I need to be very cautious because this is an empirical question and there's going to be a lot of developing work on the empirical side in the years to come that will bear on it positively or negatively. But let me you know, at least sketch the other picture. The other picture is one in which there's a lot more about the living organism that makes some difference to what it feels like to be that organism including perhaps stuff going on in the nervous system in the gut. And that would be the kind of the shape of an alternative view that I'd be, I'd be trying to push here, rather than the idea that there's a kind of separate conscious agent down there, you know, outside of the brain, or some other view that gives more autonomy or separateness to those features as they relate to experience. One of the themes that comes through in your book is that consciousness itself is probably not best viewed as a binary, as a the lights are on or the lights are off situation. And if you extend that down the stack, so to speak, you get to an idea which I've discussed before on The Filter. I had an episode with Tam Hunt about the idea of panpsychism. This is the idea that you have consciousness at the very most basic level of matter. Maybe you could give your own interpretation of that and how that might play in with the idea that we don't have a conscious or not conscious strict distinction. Yes, I, I think of that as, you know, almost certainly not true, almost certainly not how things are, partly because I think that people move towards a view like that, a, a genuinely panpsychist view, in large part because of the sense that if experience or consciousness wasn't sort of there at the at the ground floor, at the bottom level, in all matter and everything, if it wasn't there already, you couldn't build it out of other sorts of things. You couldn't sort of put things together in a way that bring felt experience or consciousness into being. And I think you can. Part of the point of the philosophical side of the book Metazoa is to try to get into view the overall shape of a story in which you you have a gradualist view. I'm going to use the word consciousness all through here, even though I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the very broad sense of that term. I, I like experience and subjective experience in some ways better, but let's just stay with the more familiar language. 
I do have a gradualist view about consciousness. I think that it can't be a binary matter, as you say. It can't be a matter of the lights being just on or being off. I think that for Darwinian reasons in part, if consciousness is an evolutionary product, uh, given its complexity, it will have been brought into being through a lot of small steps, gradual stages. There'll be stages in the process where it's not quite present, not quite absent. I think a gradualist view here is something we, we're just going to have to get used to. I think it requires some rethinking, but I think it's not forced on us, but close to forced on us by a Darwinian picture. But that's within living things. I think that the story that is a gradualist story about how it's possible for a physical system to have experience is a story about different sorts of developments, different kinds of organization, different degrees of complexity within that very special category of object, which is living things, and specifically living things that have those metabolic and membrane-related features that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. And probably also we're talking just about organisms that have nervous systems. I've come to think of nervous systems as really special as features of living things. So if you have a gradualist story in which the dawn and the origins of consciousness has to do with the transition from one stage to another, firstly within living things, within animals and within animals that have nervous systems. If that's where all the sort of difficult partway stages are found, and if a story of that kind makes sense, if you can understand how it can come to be that nervous systems are sufficient for bringing experience into being as a feature of the world, then the idea, the panpsychist idea that a grain of sand, atoms themselves, all sorts of just ordinary inorganic matter, that they have to have a kind of glimmer of this, this hard-to-explain thing, that kind of fades. And it's possible that I don't, you know, well, not just possible, I don't know all the literature on this topic, but my, my sense has always been that the panpsychist view is one that people are pushed towards out of this sense of the impossibility of explaining the existence of consciousness in terms of things that don't already have it. Right, so that you, you have that magic moment when things start to happen, and if you exclude that from the picture and say there can't be the one magic moment, that might lead you to conclude that, yes, that even a grain of sand has some glimmer. My understanding about the panpsychism and the way I think that it overlaps with a lot of the things you talk about in your work is that the thing that unifies the idea of consciousness existing at the tiniest possible level with consciousness certainly existing in our own brains is that the modulating factor is electromagnetic fields and resonances and harmonics and waves. And so that is, in a sense, what's happening when you're getting more and more complex life forms together. If you put two grains of sand together, their harmonics, so to speak, their electromagnetic fields are not going to interact. But within a brain or some complex 
organism that has a nervous system and a lot of gray matter, you see actually a lot of organization and messaging and harmonics between those. So the thing that exists in a chaotic way at the very lowest level also exists in a much richer and complex way in the brain. That's my understanding of the connection. The, the last part of what you said, I think, is getting too close, for my comfort anyway, to the idea that electromagnetic activity just is consciousness or is the unique basis for experience. The view that I try to work towards and you know haven't resolved even half of the details of is a picture in which what makes nervous systems special here is a combination of, firstly, the more familiar cell-to-cell signaling, relaying forms of influence, you know, the trains of spikes that exist within a brain that involve one cell affecting the state of another. There's that side, which is the sort of network properties of brains that um, people who write in this area typically mostly have in mind as the basis for whatever it is that a mind might be. And then there's the large-scale dynamic features of nervous systems, the rhythms, the field-based influences, the more holistic ways in which patterns of energy evolve within the system and affect not just future states of the whole, but also particular cells. There's all sorts of quite intricate causal paths here that are unlike anything I think we find anywhere else. Now, how exactly to get the story of the origins of consciousness to sit onto that set of different features of brain activity is something I'm, I'm not sure about. One thing I am wary of is that move which it's tempting to make. And I think everyone who thinks about this topic from a materialist point of view, occasionally finds oneself drifting down this path when you think to yourself, well, you know, cells don't seem like the right kind of thing. You know, cell activity, just this cell making that cell fire doesn't seem like the right activity to be experience. Uh, But this is, of course, a system full of electrical and electromagnetic features, maybe a kind of a sort of cloud of field-like activity is itself the mind or is itself the experiential unit or something like that. I think of that is probably a, a temptation to resist the sort of cloudy, fieldy side of those brain processes. It's, it's sort of too alluring a story if you're going to have a story about how that is the basis for the mind, you have to have a story about how the things that minds do could be achieved, could be done by that cloud-like thing. And that's partly why I resist, because the story about how minds are able to do all the things that they can do is a story about how brains as a whole, and not just brains, but nervous systems as a whole, nervous systems within bodies as wholes are able to do all those things. So I, I can see how the emphasis placed on the peculiar physical features of brains and 
electromagnetic considerations in the book. I can see how it might be in some ways suggestive of a link to a sort of super, super gradualist story that that shades into a panpsychist story. That's not the way I think things will go, though. It's not the way I... It's not the view I'm trying to develop. The view I'm trying to develop is a view in which the peculiarities of living systems and of nervous systems with all their properties as features of particular living systems, animals, uh, a story in which it, it's, it's that that's responsible for bringing consciousness into being. Fair enough. And I think it's certainly the case that ideas like panpsychism are still very, let's just say, speculative. We, we certainly don't have any proof of that. I want to do one other little bit of speculating here. By looking at consciousness from an evolutionary lens, you're implicitly and sometimes explicitly in your book making the argument that the nature of an organism's consciousness is related to its environmental needs. Land animals, mammals like ourselves, need a much deeper sense of self than do algae, and so we have that. And of course, evolution is never static. Is there a case to be made that in order to survive this age, and this is going to be speculative for sure, uh, in order to survive this age that combines the increasing dominance of digital technology along with unprecedented powers to destroy our world, that we as a species will have to evolve some new kind of consciousness just to survive? I doubt that it's a new kind of consciousness that we need. I hadn't actually asked myself that question before. I think in a sense we have all the mental and cultural tools that we need. Now it's it's always, when someone says that, it's always possible to come along later and say, well, you had no idea what was possible. This other thing uh, turned out to be a crucial innovation that changed everything and it wasn't in your picture. I appreciate that, but... I don't see the challenges that we face as challenges that intelligent foresight and the intelligent use of technologies won't suffice to overcome, so long as we do use our resources intelligently. I probably put less importance than some other people on the idea that new kinds of mind or new kinds of intelligence, new kinds of cognitive processing will come to exist as a consequence of the interaction between our biological being and various kinds of, of technology, computer technology. I'm sceptical about some forms of, of strong AI, the idea in particular that an experiencing mind could exist just as software, and probably and this might just be a gut reaction, this might not be based on, on much in a way of explicit reasons, sceptical that it will be those computer tools that will get us the cognitive advances that we need to, to do better. I think we just need to use what we have in a more intelligent way. So I, right, I'm, I'm not going down perhaps the road that you're pointing gently towards there. Well, and I certainly wouldn't be able to say it's it's speculative whether the changes to our environment and the increasing digitalization of things and the needs to keep ourselves uh, from blowing ourselves up will 
make it so that some kind of different man is selected for, or put another way, if we survive through this, will it be because people with a slightly different kind of consciousness have been the ones who've shepherded the way? It's it's pure speculation, I know. Yeah. Uh, any more thoughts to that? or? Yeah, look, I, I think that we have on board concepts and pictures that could do a lot of good. The idea of sustainability, I think, is a right, is a good guiding concept in thinking about our relationships to many kinds of economic activity, our relations to the environment. We need to develop economies in a way that has an eye to sustainability. The idea of endless economic growth, I think, is obviously a sort of foolish goal. It's tempting for politicians to always make that the kind of the shining goal that they're heading for, but growth can't be indefinite. I think we need to think more intelligently about the shape of a human life, about what kind of thing a human life is. I think we need to become more intelligent and more sensible about the processes at the end of a life when a person gets to the stage near the end where a dignified exit is a reasonable goal rather than having vast resources expended just to keep someone going in the barest sense. So I think we've got to think more intelligently about the shape of human life, including death, about sustainability, about our relationships with other animals and with the earth as a whole. There will be a third book, by the way, in the series that began with the octopus book, Other Minds, continued with the animals book, Metazoa. There'll be a third book that will be about our relationship to the earth as a whole. And it will discuss quite a few of these policy-related things. And as we're talking about it, as we're talking about these topics just now, I, I find myself thinking, right, in, in my sketches for what we need to do differently and how we need to think, the sketches that are being used to build up that book, there's not much in there about technology. There's not that about, about you know, advanced computer technology as opposed to the ordinary technologies of the sort that have been around humans for a long time. I hadn't actually made that connection until you until you asked about it just now. Oh, well, definitely looking forward to the third book in the series. You end this book with a discussion of Wittgenstein, but you don't mention what may be his most famous quote related to the differences between consciousnesses, consciousnesses of, of different creatures, which is almost like a Zen cone to me. This is the quote from Wittgenstein. If a lion could speak, we could not understand him. As someone who spent decades trying to understand the minds of animals, what do you make of that idea? I think that for Wittgenstein, the lions were very much optional to the message. Wittgenstein took enormously seriously the way in which the linguistic habits and day-to-day -day practices characteristic of a form of life in which we live, in which those sort of form coherent units and give meaning to what we do. And the idea of communication across those divides to align in this case becomes, for Wittgenstein, more problematic than it might otherwise seem because of the integrity of language games, forms of life in which patterns of communication exist and, and so on. I, the part of Wittgenstein that was important at the end of the book was 
not so much those ideas about communicative interactions, which I do think of as important in the way he saw them. I think he had some rich things to say about that. But the a more negative view that he had about the mind, where Wittgenstein and especially people influenced by Wittgenstein think that it's a total mistake to think of the mind as anything like a sort of place where things happen for you, a, a sort of a special place, a garden-like place. And although I think it's not really a place, the mind is not really a place, I think that the idea of the mind as a kind of arena or realm of free activity, of special kinds of unconstrained flights of fancy, imaginings, plannings, all sorts of offline processing that has, again, a kind of freedom about it. I think that's an important feature of minds and the evolution of minds. And although it's it's hard to say whether Wittgenstein himself, the extent to which he was dead opposed to that kind of conception of what can happen within the mind, certainly people influenced by him have had a very deflationary view about that side of the mind, the sort of dreaming, mind-wandering, free-rambling side of thought and experience. So that's what, that's what made him important there. The side of his thinking that has to do with the integrity of everyday patterns of communication and the difficulty of meaningful activity outside, meaningful linguistic activity outside of those contexts that's separate, and as I think about it now, I realize that might actually pop up at some point in the third book as well. Great. Excellent. Peter, thanks for coming on The Filter. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.